historically, we were a nation of settlers, right? An immigrant is somebody who's coming to participate in a sort of society that already exists. Now, obviously, there were people here, but the the people who came, the, the pilgrims were not looking to join Native American society. They built their own. And the whole notion of a nation of immigrants to kind of finish the elevator pitch was really a invention of mid-20th century ethnic activism. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week, you're just getting me. Sorry, no uh, cute, adorable ginger for you guys. He uh, apparently has to be with his wife to see his baby's ultrasound. It's Of course, I'm kidding. That's that's extremely important. Uh, be praying for, for Nick and Evie to have a, a healthy and happy pregnancy. All, all good so far, but we're extremely excited to see the American Moment family grow. Uh, some very junior hires here pretty soon. Um, uh, as always, please make sure to rate and review this podcast. It's extremely helpful for us. If you do so, it helps us increase in the rankings. Uh, go to AmericanMoment.org to see everything we're doing programmatically. But uh, I won't bother you too much with that this week, and we'll just go straight into who our guest is. Uh, someone who's very influential on me. He's brilliant, um, has a polymathic background, frankly, has been in uh, the world of tech, the world of journalism, the world of think tankery, the world of presidential administrations, the world of being just a random traveler trapezing around the world, and now uh, doing all sorts of fantastic stuff at the Claremont Institute and elsewhere. We had on today Jeremy Carl. Uh, Jeremy Carl is a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, where his primary focus is on immigration, multiculturalism, and nationalism in America. Uh, before he joined Claremont, he was a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Uh, he worked for George Schultz there, uh, and then before that, he was um, uh, in the in the tech world, in the journalism world, um, and uh, before that was a, a Yaley, unfortunately. But he's a uh, just one of the smartest people we know. Um, has a lot of deep issue area interests on yes energy and the environment and immigration and uh, and culture and tech, but but primarily on the immigration issue. Uh, we got to nerd out over it, uh, probably spent north of half of the podcast talking about why America is not a nation of immigrants. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to put that in the title here uh, just to piss off all the right people. It was a wide ranging, interesting discussion. I hope you'll stay all the way to the end including for um, uh, some great anecdotes on what exactly Jeremy Carl did to the spotted owl when he was in the Trump administration. So without further ado, we'll go now to Jeremy Carl. Jeremy, thank you for coming on the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Saurabh. You're one of the few people who doesn't live in Washington, D.C. that's been on this show. And so when we found out you were coming here, we were very excited to, to grab you. You live in Bozeman, Montana, which is a delightful place that is not the swamp. Um, what, what brings you out here? Oh, uh, just uh, so a number of Claremont events. I'm a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, and uh, we're having a couple conferences and things like that. So, so you're one of the most eclectic people that I know. I mean, you've you've, you've sort of you're one of the last polymaths in American life. You've you've had uh, a background that touches on you know probably four or five major industries. Walk us through that background. Go go, go back to the beginning. Who is Jeremy Carl? Where did he come from? Are you a Fed? <laughs> I'm not a Fed. Yeah. Uh, well, yes, as he t pointed out, I've been fortunate to have a really diverse career. I started uh, my career as a, a, what I would call an Internet 1.0 guy in the earliest days of the Internet. Uh, I got involved as a, still an undergraduate student in the, the early to mid 90s. Uh, so I ended up kind of joining the Internet industry before there was even an industry. I was a tech bro. 
uh, and I did that for a number of years and uh, got back to meet- when they were called Technology Brothers. <laughs> yes, they were called Technology Brothers, and um, <clears throat> got to meet uh, a number of really interesting people who did formative things. I think as a te- tech journalist, I think I wrote the second ever article on Amazon. You know, interviewed Jeff Bezos when he was just like some obscure guy. Uh, then kind of back when he used to wear the like waist high pleated pants. Yeah, for his he's magazine looking covers. better these days. <laughs> so he's so done something well over the intervening yeah. 20 plus years. But um, so I did that for a while and uh, was fortunate to do uh, fairly well in it and uh, ended up taking some time uh, and traveling. And when I got back, uh, kind of got into I'd, I'd been a, as an undergrad at Yale, I'd been very involved in politics. Um, and I kind of got back to that as a first love. Um, went into environment and resource policy um, for uh, quite some time. And in fact, still do that. Uh, moved to India and worked at a policy think tank there for a little while, then came back to do a doctorate at Stanford uh, in environment and resource policy. And uh, the late Secretary of State George Schultz was looking for somebody at Hoover Institution to um, run a, kind of a big energy policy initiative. Uh, he approached me and I thought, uh, you know, this actually seems like kind of an interesting idea. So I ended up doing that and then went to Hoover, became a fellow there, uh, kind of branched out into doing any number of things that had nothing to do with environment resource policy from nationalism to immigration to uh, what have you. Um, and then uh, ended up I'd been in California and loved my job, but I could not deal with California uh, one more uh, minute. And so I took my wife and our five kids and we packed up knowing we were moving somewhere in the U.S., didn't know where. Again, we took off and, and had a very memorable uh, year traveling around the world, which was uh, then kind of uh, ended uh, by COVID, came back to the U.S., moved to Montana um, and uh, joined up with the Claremont Institute, uh, where I am today, kind of working remotely. And um, I forgot, uh, <laughs> not a small thing. Uh, in the interim, I worked as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Interior under President Trump. And that was uh, both a kind of memorable and very instructive uh, kind of experience just to sort of see how the swamp worked up close after having written about it for so long, um, but uh, came back in, in one piece uh, from that experience uh, and then uh, moved to Montana and have uh, been there ever since. That's quite a career. I suppose we should start at the beginning. Uh, you have this fantastic essay out kind of detailing in in more depth um, uh, your history in the tech industry and, and what Web 1.0 was. But uh, let's let's start with the tech sector. What what was it like? I mean, people have a perception of what the technology world is like today. That's informed a lot by like crypto coin grift and social media companies and, you know, uh, oligarchs who hate America, but but it wasn't that at the time. It was very different. Pa- paint a picture for what that world was like. Well, it really was idealistic. And it's the only thing I've ever done in my life. And I've been fortunate to do a number of really interesting things in my life. But it was the only thing I was really doing that at the time I realized how special and unique uh, an experience that really was to be a part of it. Uh, it was kind of in on the ground. Um, I, again, yeah, I when I started with the web, you, I surfed probably just about the whole web. There were 130 sites in existence, I think, when I got in. And, and I built a personal website that was probably one of my the first few thousand in existence. The only way you could do, there were no kind of programs to build web pages. I downloaded a beginner's guide to HTML 1.0 from the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, and I taught myself. I mean, that's sort of how much of a, a DIY, do-it-yourself uh, kind of ethos existed uh, at the time. And so then when I got out of college and I'd already been writing 
about this uh, kind of the internet just as a phenomenon for the few kind of outlets that were even paying any attention to it at all. And when I kind of joined up with, which was one of the first three internet companies in existence, there was a lot of feeling from, uh, you know, like all the smart kids from Yale should go into investment banking or consulting. And like, why would you go work in, you know, internet? Like what the world is that? Um, and so then of course it turned out to be a really spectacular uh, career move. Um, and I just got to meet all these people uh, and it really was not, it's not that of course there were venture capitalists out there trying to make money, but it was just such a, a smaller world. Um, and people were just really excited and there were, yeah, I think a little bit like today, I mean, I'm obviously out of the industry now, <laughs> but, um, you know, there are young people still coming up with, with great ideas, but it really was almost exclusively a young person's industry at that time because nobody over 30 had any idea what was going on. I mean, that was the, I met Mark Andreessen when he, uh, you know, who's now sort of in our world a little bit politically, uh, but he just kind of basically built the first graphical web browser. Um, so it was a really exciting time. It was really idealistic. Um, people had a sense of limitless possibility. And unfortunately what happened, and I've written about this over time, is that particularly with, in terms of speech, there were a lot of things said by the Electronic Frontier Foundation about, oh, information wants to be free and the internet is going to be revolutionary and do all these things. And all that was true after a fashion, but it also became true that the internet ultimately became a mechanism of surveillance, a mechanism of social control. And the free speech that we were promised has increasingly become less free over time. Surveillance and social control are are, are two separate phenomena. I want to ask about each of them. When was the first moment you felt like the surveillance side of things was starting to be operative, the first itch where it was like, oh, oh, this isn't just the, the tool of freedom? Gosh, I mean, that's a great question. And I think it's interesting. There's there's no one thing I can point to, but I think even early in the days of the internet, I, I probably was just not perceptive enough to see it. But there were <laughs> there were folks on, on Usenet, which was kind of, a, again, if you're under 40, you didn't have to worry about anything like this, but kind of early message boards, kind of proto reddits, um, who were anonymous, um, and they were they were doxxed. I mean, we didn't have that term at the time, but but that's what fundamentally happened to them, and they got in trouble. And in fact, I wrote a paper in college again when this was all just a very very new phenomenon about somebody who'd done something where they'd written like a violent pornographic thing about a real person on one of these um, sites under an anonymous way, and then they were doxxed and. Even though, you know, there wasn't actually any real threat that was going on, but you know, various criminal things were 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 threatened of them, and obviously that's not the most uh, abusive example. I mean, it's actually arguably a, a somewhat reasonable one, but all of a sudden, you know, even over time, it just became clear that anonymity was not going to be what you thought it was, and that there were going to be consequences mm -hmm. uh, for for things that it did. And then you began to read about China cracking down on internet dissidents and, and mm -hmm. things like that, or even Singapore in the earlier days. So I think those were the times I began to to really think about this. One of the fundamental things that would have changed in the in the time horizon since then is that it, the internet and digital media more broadly went from being a thing that people used that became a part of their life after they were already an adult to something that people are formed from from the earliest ages of childhood uh what was the you know in in the realm of social control when was it that you first felt like the technology was shaping us rather than the other way around 
Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question. Um, again, I think probably the origins of it were were very early. I mean, even in just some of the the ways in which communication technologies began to to arrive. Even when I was an undergrad, we had a primitive version of instant messaging on Yale's campus. Um, and you began to see people's behavior really being shaped in the real world by how they used these tools. And again, I don't think that really we were thinking about them reflexively. There, I do remember reading a woman named Sherry Turkle, who was at MIT. She may still be there as like an emeritus. So she's she's certainly up near retirement, but she she was writing about these things at an early age. And then Wired Magazine, which has kind of become sort of cringe and boring now, but was sort of hip and revolutionary when it came out. They were exploring a lot of these cultural issues around the internet and and issues of control. And they were much more utopian and McLuhan-esque in sort of their approach to things. But it definitely got me thinking about some of these um you know, the ways that the internet was going to be used that uh, were going to have non-obvious mm-hmm. effects. When it comes to the figures that were part of that Web 1.0, you sort of were were in it with them, and then you went and did other stuff, and then you found out about them again once they became really famous. Yeah. What, uh, you know, you, you saw A and you saw C. What what has that experience been like watching the people, you know, and what you knew about them? How close are those, you know, once idealists to the people and the household names that we see today. Yeah, well, it's interesting. And and I don't know how, you know, did Jeff Bezos, when I was talking to him, basically working out of a little warehouse in Seattle, effectively, did he have this vision for like what he was going to ultimately be and do? I don't know. I mean, often people who really go out and do huge things like that do have them, even if they're not sharing them with with folks like me. Um, although I, you know, I think it also kind of just developed organically. And in many cases, we were waiting for the technology to catch up with our visions. That was very much true at the company that I worked at. I worked at <coughs> primarily a company called Real Networks um, that pioneered audio and video streaming on the internet, which you couldn't do before our software, mm. um, basically. And so many of the commercial things that we want to do that people would take for granted now, if I'm going to stream my show or do whatever, we wanted to do all that. Um, and and had all of the sort of conceptualizations and subscribing to music services, but just the technology was not; it didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't mature enough to be able to do anything. Um, in watching the people, I mean, it's fascinating for me to watch a guy, especially like I'll return again to Mark Andreessen, because if there's any one figure, I mean, obviously it was the internet was a collectivity. Um, in terms of advancing it. But if there's any one figure who I would say was most principled and revolutionary, it would have been Mark. I mean, he really, in, in building the first graphical web browser, that's what caused things. As a grad student at University of Michigan. Uh, University yeah. of Illinois at the Illinois, yeah. at, at, at there, um, that he he did that and, um, you know, and just released that. And then it eventually became this company. It was NCSA Mosaic from the National Center for Supercomputing Applications when I started using it. And then he commercialized it and it became Netscape. It's interesting to me that a revolu- a truly revolutionary guy like that has kind of drifted into our orbit over time. And I think it's because he has that sophisticated understanding of technology and power and how it's used and has really been thinking about these things in a deep way that hasn't just been commercial, that 
some of the some of the and he's not unique. Um, I mean, he's the one who comes to mind most. But some of these earliest guys in the orbit, and even though libertarians can kind of be cringe, there were a lot of less cringe internet libertarians, and that was much more the ethos. It was much more of a libertarian ethos than a liberal ethos mm-hmm. back then. And even the Valley, I mean, the Valley when I started in this, the business was represented by a Republican in Congress, which is in- inconceivable today. Mm-hmm. So there's really been a dramatic woke revolution of which somebody else will write the good bio of that and not me but it, the culture has really changed in the intervening decades for mm-hmm. sure it seems like with a figure like andreessen he went from from idealist to sort of a part of the establishment upon making his billions and now once he has the fu money um is is able to be ecumenical once more did did you know, did you have a sense of kind of what that process of sort of establishment creation was like? I guess it would have been in the in the early 2000s properly when when, you know, a bunch of dudes who had these things called computers no one knew anything about were suddenly sent to millionaires or beyond. Yeah. Um, is that just money and what money does to people or was there something specific that happened there? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it's that far beyond that it is what what money does to people. And it was a really weird, surreal experience. And in fact, I never had the experience as a young professional, as most people do, of kind of having to grind your way up the ladder. In fact, I almost had to go back to do my doctorate to have that experience at all, because we sort of came in and all of a sudden you could go from zero to pretty important (laughs) at the age of 22. Mm -hmm. Um, There may have been something more fundamental about just the technology, but I think that that honestly was just people had money and independence. And over time, they're beginning to sit back and begin to think about the effects of that more. And you're seeing this even in a guy like Elon Musk, who's really the great entrepreneur of our generation. And he got started not too long after the the beginnings of this whole business with the PayPal mafia and, <laughs> and other things like that. Um, but um, Peter Thiel. Uh, but I think the more thoughtful guys on this are beginning to gravitate a little more toward an antagonistic relationship with with woke capital. And I'd certainly like to push them mm-hmm. in that direction as much as we can. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the the politics of it. Um, you, you, you've been on the right for a very long time, it seems like. What does your own political trajectory look like? And, and you know, then we can start by by the earliest examples of your involvement. Uh, what, what was it like to be a right winger in 1990, whatever? <laughs> well, well, it's funny you mentioned because actually truly in the mid 90s, I was still anomalous. I, was, I wouldn't say I was left winger, but I was very centrist. I was like kind of a a DLC Democrat, even when I was at <laughs> Yale, uh, Democratic Leadership Council. Yeah. And that would there. make you a fascist today. I, mean, be, I would be a fascist today, but I was like, oh, Clinton is, but this is not Hillary, but Bill, he's moving the Democrats to the right. That's a good thing. I mean, I grew up in an academic environment, and so you just would never even think about being a conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, I was endorsed twice for Yale Political Union office by the the furthest right-wing party of uh, the Yale Political Union, so maybe they saw something in me uh, <laughs> that I did not uh, fully see in myself. But it was really over time as kind of the institutional lies of the left became greater and more difficult to cover up. Um, and, and also, as I just got more life experience, as I think most people do, you begin to just see, oh, you know, our ideal ways that we think of doing these things doesn't really always correspond to how they actually work in the real mm-hmm. world. I think 
Also, living in India was, in some ways, it was kind of a, a radicalizing experience because we s- have this in common. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you see, I, I, you're very familiar with this, and in some of like, it's like woke privilege on steroids. There, I mean, you mm-hmm. would see people mouthing these platitudes about social justice while like grinding down some of the poorest people in the entire world, mm-hmm. and it was just like a little bit much to stomach it again i'm not picking on india i had a great time there and a fascinating experience but it it put that human universal in really stark relief uh there and in fact the people who were really fighting for the am admi the common man in india were often these kind of like right-wing dissidents basically mm-hmm. uh, and eventually some of those guys came into power under modi but um for a long time they were uh sort of very marginal in the discourse but i think the hypocrisies of elite liberal discourse really became in sharp relief for me having that experience uh and it was shortly after i got back from india in 2005 i don't think i mentioned india as we were talking about the bio we just skipped over it but i was there for a year and a half and then subsequently uh went back a lot for research um but those were all very formative political experiences for me Mm -hmm. And so the first main uh, major thing that, you know, post tech world that you were involved in with politics was was this sort of energy, natural resources space. What were the what were the focuses of your research? What what drew you to it? Uh, I'm assuming some of it had to do with your, your scientific and technical background. What was what was interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think and I wouldn't want to oversell my 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 technical background, but um, I did. I'd always um, I'm kind of like a nature loving hippie um, <laughs> at the at heart. At the end of the day, it's one of the reasons we live in Montana because uh, you know it's a gorgeous a gorgeous place to live. Um, but those sorts of uh, policy areas appealed to me a lot, and so I started doing that when I was in grad school first at Harvard <laughs> and then at Stanford. And I kind of gravitated toward energy more than environment over time. Although I kind of oscillated back and forth because ultimately. Um, energy policy just tended to have more at stake and more serious people involved in it. I'm mm-hmm. sort of sad to say I wish we had more serious people involved in environmental policy, but often it's just like the most stereotypically superficial moralizing leftism versus just, you know, drill baby drill on the right. And that's mm-hmm. that's it. Um, or, you know, um, people on the right. I mean, uh, and I know like, there are tons of right wingers in Montana who all love being out in nature, but they don't always articulate that in terms of a a policy program. So energy was like a little more relevant, a little bit more of a politically neutral space to to get involved in. And so I did a lot of my most uh, serious work there. I did a lot on kind of unsexy parts of energy, like coal and nuclear. Uh, I I did a lot of my graduate work on India's coal sector, actually. Mm -hmm. It took me doing field work in a bunch of very remote parts of India. Um, But uh, nuclear, again, when I was I was maybe just being a little bit contrarian. So sort of Things that were very out of favor at the time, but have now really come back uh, to some significant degree where even the left is like, "Mm, you know, well, maybe actually nuclear is not so bad as an alternative. So I looked at all these things uh, and spent a lot of time on them. What's the biggest heresy of the way that America does energy from a policy perspective? Um, I would say that we're. Everything we say about climate policy is just unserious, and that's true. I mean, particularly it's true on the left, um, but it's even true to a degree on the right. I'm not going to adjudicate that. I'm kind of, I mean, I'm a hard right winger on most stuff. On climate, I'm a little more uh, moderate, but everything that the left says about actual climate science and policy is almost just wrong. I mean, just empirically, if you understand, that was one thing I really took away from my time 
at the Department of the Interior is I would have reports coming up to me from our supposed technical experts in the field that I was, you know, being asked, somebody be working on the teams have been working on this for years. And I would be asked to kind of sign on, well, this is what the Department of the Interior is going to do on this issue. And I would read them and I would just be like, well, this is wrong. This is actually not. And I, you know, I'm not talking about like I went on Gateway Pundit and like found <laughs> something. I'm talking about like I went to Science Magazine and I'm like, have you read these studies? Mm-hmm. Because this actually, um, you know, are you aware how these scenarios are modeled? Like, do you actually understand any of this underlying stuff? And they actually don't in 90 plus percent of cases. And so there's a bunch of pseudoscience that's being put out there or just our ability to predict anything about our energy mix globally, what it's going to look like in 30 or 40 years. I mean, if you want to get at least the policy equivalent of a laugh, just go back and read the U.S. Energy Information Agency stuff from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and look at what they thought, you know, all these very, very smart people. Like, what is our mix of energy going to be? How much energy are we going to use? A bunch of monkeys throwing poo at the wall (laughs) would have been more accurate. Yeah. What did Um, they think it would look like? Well, it depends on who it was. They were all (laughs) equally wrong. They almost all felt that we were going to use more energy than we did by a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say the biggest way that people missed by a lot was on coal. Uh, They thought we were going to use a lot more coal. In some cases, depending on the year, they thought we were going to use a lot more nuclear they just they continually fail to understand innovation. They fail to understand um, that the market responds to price signals and people begin to do different things. And, and then the smarter people who use models will tell you that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. Mm-hmm. And I would not I mean, I'm really skeptical of a lot of modeling exercises, but I do think that if you do take that approach, you can get something out of it. But um, often that's not how they're used. They're just used as political bludgeons by the left. And just like with COVID, I mean, they, it, it's they've discredited the entire scientific enterprise, which I love, which I think is really, really useful within its own frame when it's not totally politicized. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, it has been totally politicized to the point that we just we can't trust anything that any of these so-called experts say. I mean, I have to do my own first principles research on 90 plus percent of this or go to one of like three or four researchers who I can trust to not put their thumb on the scale. Yeah. That's sort of where we are. So on the climate modeling specifically, what it, what is the track record of, of you know, the mainstream left-leaning scientific establishment? Uh, what mistakes is it that they make and, and where do you think that there might be useful information to draw there? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, this, this, I mean, these details can get very technical and esoteric, which I don't want to do on this mm-hmm. podcast. But I mean, in general, I would say they've just been wrong on their their temperature modeling period. Um, and these are enormously complex, right? Like, I'm not saying, oh, I could do better. No, I mean, it's it's like it's almost like you can't do it. Um, and when you truly understand the nuts and bolts to some degree about the resolution that these models are using, like how much they're assuming about, OK, well, this whole swath of land behaves the same way well no actually you know when you really get down there it doesn't but if you if you treated it like something more real and less ideal then you wouldn't be able to run your model Mm -hmm. right so you make all these simplifying assumptions and the net effect of all these simplifying assumptions is that it ultimately ends up ends up garbage in garbage out Mm -hmm. um so so they're wrong on that um they're wrong on even bigger things which is just that if you look at kind of how these things work, you're predicting certain things about what the energy mix is going to be like, what the size of the economy is going to be. And these are by far the biggest inputs in your models. And we don't really know what those are going to be. 
Like we we were we have a track record of being terrible at predicting this stuff mm-hmm. universally. There's not like oh you know John at the uh, or Vaklav Smil at the University of Manitoba who's probably actually the only guy who who is pretty good at this stuff. But I mean, it's not like this one guy actually got it right and everybody else got it wrong. It's like no, everybody got it wrong because mm-hmm. you just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the whole thing is just kind of a rotten foundation. And where, where you could actually use it well is to understand. If people are being honest, how variables interact, um, but but that's not how we use it. We use it in a politicized way, and we get garbage results as a result. So the politicization is the the other component to this, right? There there's there's just hubris on one end, which is thinking that you can divine the future and right. not being able to do so on sort of secular right. terms, and then there's well. It's not just garbage in, garbage out. It's that we want a pretty picture on this end. We're going to shove garbage in on right. one side until we can get the pretty picture. Well, when did you start to really notice the the extreme politicization of 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 climate science? Well, I think when I had a chance in graduate school to really dig deep into these models, and then first of all, people would tell you sometimes. And when I say that, I don't, I do not want to overestimate or overrepresent my own expertise in modeling at all. Okay, but it actually doesn't take that much once you start digging into them to be like, oh, you know, you can't really assume this with any validity. Or, or just as simple, you don't even need to be that smart. You just go back and go, oh, the paper that you wrote 15 years ago had a bunch of predictions and they were totally wrong. So why am I going to listen to you mm-hmm. this time? But it's it's just, it was really in graduate school. And then I began to just see also, as I began to be around all these people at Stanford who were very left-leaning, how their political biases just colored everything that they said about <laughs> these sorts of issues. Um, and so... It was really, I think, the more I started studying it, the more skeptical I became. And again, the reason I would call myself a moderate is I wouldn't say that climate change is not happening, that humans do not affect climate change, or not even that it's a problem that we shouldn't worry about. But I feel like it's a very tractable problem in a 98% case, and we can deal with it like we can deal with other problems. And the people who say that we don't or can't, they have an agenda to transform society in all sorts of other ways Mm -hmm that are very political and really have nothing to do with climate or the environment at all. Transforming society, I say, gets a lot closer to, I think, the issues that animate your heart these days. <laughs> um, see that segue? <laughs> and, it was uh, very good. I was like, wow, <laughs> good job, Sora. Um, and so uh, during the time that you were at the Hoover Institution, I think you you started to opine more on sort of what I would say is the, the kind of leading edge of our favorite hard right issues, issues like immigration, like nationalism, so on. A, when was that period? Um, uh, I'm assuming it was sometime in the 2010s when when all these issues were really reaching their apogee in terms of public interest before they got an actual political manifestation. Uh, and B, how did that track with your broader kind of right wing journey? You know, did, w- did one happen than the other, or did you start you know noticing these things about yeah. the about the nation and such that then led to your political change? You know, it's a great it's a great question, Saurabh. And I think the the time that was really transformative for my thinking about this actually happened much earlier. I left the tech business in late 2000, and I had the very fortunate uh, position of having a fair bit of uh, financial resources at that point, and nobody um, attached to me. And so uh, something I certainly am very aware of now, having a wife and five kids. Um, So I spent two years traveling around the world, basically, uh, just with backpack. And I traveled mostly to developing countries of all sorts of different stripes. 
And I think, A, it just gave me an appreciation for the huge variety of ways that people live in the world, which is not some stunning insight, but I think knowing it and seeing it are very, very different mm -hmm. things. Um, and then also it gave me appreciation for like a nation, for identity, for the sorts of things that cause conflicts in nations, for how unpleasant those conflicts can become. And it also gave me an appreciation for how lucky we are to live in the US with all of its dysfunctionalities, with all of the ways in which it has gone downhill dramatically, even from my childhood and probably even from your childhood. I know you're not uh, that old a guy, but but even so. Um, but still, we have so many advantages that other places don't. There are so many unique things about our political culture. There are so many ways in which an average person can get ahead here that we just almost take for granted that in other societies, I would run into super talented people who just had no hope of getting anywhere because of an accident of birth or anything else. And so I really, I had a lot of time because I was traveling by myself and a lot of experience in, in seeing these things and thinking about these things. Um, and that was really when I began to think about issues like immigration, about national identity. And then uh, sort of in the late, <laughs> late 2000 aughts, I began really writing about them more seriously mid, you know, 2005, 2006, probably started out and then kind of accelerating as they became more relevant to the broader GOP uh, political project. Mm -hmm. um, well, how has talking about the immigration issue changed in the in that window of time? Because it feels like tracking to the early 2000s, you went from a world where it was relatively bipartisan to make thoughtful critiques about our immigration policy as policy yeah. to like, no, 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 no one's allowed to talk about it right. to on one side of the political spectrum, it is becoming okay to talk about it again. What, right. what, what was it like to be the Forrest Gump of American politics <laughs> yeah. on the immigration issue? <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, because I, I joke that, you know, I just want to be like Barbara Jordan, right? Barbara Jordan was a liberal African-American lesbian civil rights pioneer congressman who uh, President Clinton put in charge of uh, kind of a big commission on immigration that made a number of totally sensible r recommendations. This is late 1990s, I believe. Um, and those recommendations were promptly ignored. Um, and so I think there was a big cheap labor wing of the GOP that unfortunately still exists. And um, the combination of those two folks against people such as myself, who are saying, you know, hey, like, actually, when you totally radically and quickly change uh, the demographic characteristics and the pace of immigration to a country that actually can have some very disruptive effects. Mm -hmm. And again, I saw this a lot during my travels. This is when I began to really see this and think about it. Um, maybe we should just be prudent here, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, um, and uh, so, you know, that was such a marginal position. And I was kind of a a Ron Paul guy in 2008, and he was kind of on the right of some of these things and also uh, was much more skeptical as I was and continue to be of, of foreign military intervention. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but we were, we were like pariahs within the GOP. I mean, it was all just this kind of like hard right fringe along with some kind of really wacko cringe libertarians mm -hmm. who were weird. Um, and it's been amazing to see the center of the party's at least activist base really come toward us to the point that, you know, the views that we were espousing then have been really mainstreamed. And uh, despite the fact that it was done often in a very crude way, I mean, I think Donald Trump was the key galvanizer of that, for which I will give him enormous credit, because I think it's really important that we do talk about these issues 
Uh, and obviously the left is not capable of talking about them in an honest way. Uh, but I think on the right, we're having a much better and healthier conversation about it. Yeah. Um, what what was the the main flashpoints of the immigration issue at the time you were getting interested in it? I mean, wh- one of the things that's the shocking for any person who's not from America is realizing the way we do immigration policy. No country does it at the rate, scale, or manner that we do it in. Um, most countries don't really do it at all. Like, right, they're right. not like m- m- most people don't want to move to most countries. But even if they did, those countries would be like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> like, right. Uh, China and Japan are not yeah. exactly, you know, wel- welcoming of immigrants. Right. Yeah. Um, Europe now to a greater degree, yeah. but historically, no. Yeah. Um, and again, we are slightly different. Um, we are not, I would argue, a nation of immigrants, something mm-hmm. I'm going to be speaking on later this week. But we're certainly a nation that has had a lot of immigration mm-hmm. over time. But. I think the breakdown of our culture of assimilation, which has now kind of become a bad mm. word on the left, but to me is the the necessary um, requirement for any serious immigration policy, has just thrown this crisis mm. into relief. And I'd say even beyond that, um, you know, ultimately, if, we, if we're going to put Humpty Dumpty to act together again, which I would certainly much rather do than have some sort of civil conflict. We are going to need to restitch together an American ethnicity, for lack of a better term, that is going to be fundamentally multiracial at some level and component, just because that's what we are now, right? And um, but but we do need to have that unified American identity. If we just balkanize into different ethnic groups, they, I mean, things are going to get really, really ugly. And again, I saw this when I was abroad. I, I think also moving to California, you began to see like the ubiquity of extremely racialized politics living there. So that was kind of an an eye-opener for me. Um, so we have to stitch Humpty Dumpty or you know put it back together again. But if we're just having unlimited open borders like Joe Biden wants, we're not having that pause like we had from the 20s to 60s here, where we had a ton of immigration from mostly Europe, but not exclusively, but from all sorts of different parts that were not quote unquote old stock Americans. But we stitch together an American identity out of that due to a, a long lull effectively in immigration and an aggressive assimilation plan into Americanness. That's what's lacking today. Mm-hmm. Your elevator pitch. Why is America not a nation of immigrants? Uh, so I think two, two, two quick things. First is historically, we were a nation of settlers, right? An immigrant is somebody who's coming to participate and it's a sort of society that already exists. Now, obviously, there were people here, but uh, the the people who came, the, the pilgrims, were not looking to join Native American society. They built their own society, you know, for better, for worse, atrocities on both sides, you know, all duly noted. But but that's the reality of that early immigration. It was also kind of very much an outpost of Great Britain functionally. I mean, at the time of the revolution, 85% of Americans were of British, or I think even English, or maybe I think British. Um, so we we weren't uh, really a nation of immigrants. And even if you read de Tocqueville talking about America 200 plus years um, after the, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, there's not a single mention of immigration in democracy in America. Not because, of course, there weren't immigrants, but because there was such a defined American character and it was really only in the mid 19th century after the failed revolutions of 1848 that we began to get significant actual immigration um, from kind of non-English speaking countries. I mean, we had some, there were the Dutch, et cetera, but, and, and Germans, but, but, but not at a sort of 
high level that it was dramatically shifting society. Then after that, you kind of you also had the frontier that you have to add to that. And this gets mm-hmm. back to Frederick Jackson Turner, a uh, famous talk at the American Historical Association, The Significance of the Frontier in American History, 1893. This kind of notion that we were always kind of settling out until 1890 and the frontier closed. And of course, many people were coming to an established society, but there were also people who were kind of creating a new society up until that time. And the whole notion of a nation of immigrants to kind of finish the elevator pitch was really a invention of mid 20th century ethnic activism. And then you can trace this history. And again, I won't get, in, <laughs> get into details of it here, but President Kennedy comes out with a book that he didn't really write, which is true of his other books as well. <laughs> um, but he comes out with this book called A Nation of Immigrants that was response, uh, a response to coordinated ethnic campaigning. Um, and we begin, and, and this is also as a result of a number of historians with their own agendas to kind of promote this, this notion of us being a nation of immigrants. Um, and that's when you begin to see this uh, kind of ideology serving the interests of a large group of Americans. Not, by the way, I should add, with necessarily nefarious intents. I mean, in many cases, just like wanting to belong, which of course, anybody can understand. But in doing that, they sort of recreated a historical record that wasn't really there. Yeah. So the settler immigrant distinction is, I think, so important to understand how a nation's history matters in questions like this, because it wasn't as if the America that we know today was always here. And so the process by which something was actually built has to be acknowledged when it comes to these sort of concept of a person going from one place to somewhere else. And it it continues even to this day, I would argue. I mean, there's something fundamentally different about someone immigrating to New York City, which is like a already built, overbuilt in some cases society, versus, you know, moving to rural Montana. I mean, that that, that is fundamentally different. And, you know, uh, we have this concept that the frontier is closed. I would say that, I mean, we have not reached the apogee of even the continental United States being settled. It's going to be kind of settled inward for decades and decades and decades to come. It kind of went coast, run across the country, kind of doing some stuff along the way, coast, and then everything in between is going to get filled in afterwards. Um, what What's the material logic here? I mean, it, you know, very concretely, one of the ways I like to put this is that it America went from a place where it was materially risky for you and your family to go to a place where it was materially beneficial, no questions asked for you and your family to go. How much does that play in? I think it's huge. So let me let me address both parts of what you said, because I think they're very interesting and insightful. Um, the first is to what degree we still are filling in. Where I live in Montana, uh, about, about 10 minutes outside of Bozeman uh, in southwest Montana, there is not a city of more than 250,000 people within a 10-hour drive of my house. So there's still a lot of um, empty space. And you really feel that when you live in a place like Montana, Mm -hmm. as opposed to living in the boss wash corridor uh, out here. And and that's good. We know we're not Matt Iglesias here. We want some (laughs) empty space in our country. Absolutely. I do not want a billion Americans, (laughs) unlike, unlike Matt Iglesias. But even when I go back and how recent this history is, you touch on of interior settling. My mother was born in Phoenix, Arizona in 1941 just 29 years after statehood. It had been an unorganized territory. She knew people growing up who had been part of, you know, here there be tigers. I mean, of course, not literally, right? But it was just, it wasn't even fully American yet. 
in my mother's lifetime. And she would tell me even about when she was a kid, Phoenix had 60,000 people when she was born there. Mm -hmm. Um, And she would tell me about kind of like seeing Native Americans in town who were kind of like not, you know, sort of like all modern 21st century Native Americans. They weren't wearing Levi's. (laughs) They were not wearing Levi's, you know, like very traditional lifestyle. So this is like not in ancient history that we're talking about, but in my own mother's Mm -hmm. lifetime in certain Mm -hmm. parts of the continental U.S., it was still like that. Um, Secondly, I think the material logic that you talked about is really important. There was a huge difference in the sort of risk that was taken. I mean, A, just the travel itself was much more expensive. And in fact, when people have done empirical studies of 19th century immigration, early 20th century immigration, it was not kind of the tiredest, poorest, huddlest masses that came. It was the people a little bit of a step up because the truly folks at the bottom of the pyramid couldn't even afford for the Mm. most part to come here, even Mm. in steerage. Um, And so you had those folks and then there wasn't a welfare state waiting for them. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them came back. And in fact, a lot of them came back by design and there's staggering numbers, like 50% of Southern Italians returned to Italy. And, And you can go through lots of different ethnic groups and find this. There was a huge level of kind of permanent return. And of course, you still have that going on today. But with, I mean, again, I've spent a lot of time in a lot of very poor countries. With the American welfare state being what it is, there is pretty much no scenario in which you are not going to be dramatically better off if you can somehow get your way to the United States than you would have been in the Central African Republic. And oh, by the way, we're not ever going to really deport you either. So... Well, and there, there's also, um, you know, slightly more ecumenical definitions of this stuff that you can take as well, which is that, you know, even if you're not technically on a welfare regime, like the the quantum, you know, uh, money you can earn for the same labor from third world country X to America as even an illegal alien is is huge and you you throw in the modern financial system which essentially lets you wire cash that has vastly more purchasing power you know one male breadwinner illegally immigrating to the united states working as a farm laborer can sustain an entire family of 30 back in guatemala or sure, what have you course. and none of that was possible for a variety of reasons in 1848 right. or whatever it was you know a you didn't have the financial tools because of the digital revolution to do stuff like that too um you know there wasn't this dramatically scaled difference in purchasing power between those countries and three um people didn't even know that this was a thing you could do of, of course and it's it's not that part is not even totally unique to the united states if, if you've had the experience of say going through south india and you'll be going through a village and all of a sudden there'll be these almost like McMansions that are there in what's a relatively poor village. And you're like, aha, those are the guys who went to Dubai, right? Mm. Like their family and there's somebody there earning and those you have that differential purchasing power. And so I think to the extent that immigration has become a really globalized phenomenon in certain ways, it's exactly those sorts of financial dynamics Mm -hmm. that you're touching on. I don't want to concern troll um, because it's not necessarily the thing that animates my views on immigration. My views on immigration are downstream of my interest as an American. But but what is your theory of what mass immigration does to the countries of origin? What does it do to the rest of the world? And is it a bad thing, a good thing? Yeah, well, and I, I think that's a great question to ask. And I also don't want to concern troll about it because at the end of the day, 
I'm most concerned about America. But I also do think you see this horrific brain drain from a lot of the countries that can least afford it um, of talented people coming here. Um, and you essentially decapitate mm -hmm. a lot of the leadership. You also reward. I mean, in Mexico, this has really been notorious where we rewarded decades and decades of misgovernment by, OK, well, these folks have no path up in Mexico because it's a totally dysfunctional uh, governing society. And I don't mean that the society is I mean, actually enjoy Mexico. It's not a totally dysfunctional society, but the the kind of economy and government mm -hmm. piece of it is very dysfunctional and corrupt. Um, uh, but. Uh, you know, we, we, we've been their safety valve. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's, it's just unhealthy all around. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's almost nothing good I can say about in 2021, 2022, excuse me, kind of mass immigration to the U S at the scale we're seeing it either for us or for the countries that are sending them for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's a couple layers to it too, right? I mean, the traditional definition of brain drain that we think about is, oh, they're rocket scientists are here and they can't make rockets now. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. some of that. But I, I mean, if Nick was here today, he'd, he would say when he was a missionary down in, down in Honduras with his family, there were entire villages where there were no men between the ages of 18 and 50. Sure. Just, they, they weren't there. They were elsewhere working and usually in the United States um, or, or, or other developed countries. And so you're, you're not only taking your your third standard deviation smart people and giving them a magnet um, that that keeps them out of the countries that need them most, um, but you're also taking the thick part of the bell curve, the people who uphold society at all, and you're essentially leaving it to like the weird kind of deviants who aren't deviant enough to go run cartels in the United States, but just want to like engage in butchery back home. Like it's a very particular kind of thing that you're, you're leaving behind. Um, what, what would you say? I mean, is there any country that has, has recognized this and wants to keep its own talent? Well, I think to some extent you've seen this in Central America, um, to varying degrees. I mean, again, I don't follow the politics there closely enough to, to kind of make informed public statements about them. But I, I have seen folks at least make efforts to say, you know, hey, like stick around here and we're going to try to give you uh, opportunities. There's Bukele down in, uh, <laughs> is it El Salvador? Or, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, who's, I mean, he's actually seems like be like a very smart, innovative guy mm -hmm. who's also good at trolling his opposition, which yeah. I respect. Um, so I think people are thinking about this, but I think the, the dysfunction is just as you describe it. And I kind of know it more anecdotally um, but, but it's, it's huge. It's, it's disfiguring to, to everything. And then ultimately my primary concern is it's disfiguring to the United States because it's just not clear what, what upholds the American, I, what is the American idea anymore? Like, mm -hmm. I don't even know what that is. Um, what's our common history? What's our common culture? Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't think we have answers to that in a time where we currently have three times the number of immigrants in an absolute sense than we ever had previously. And if you go back post pre-64, yeah. pre-65. Yeah. Yeah. Bukele is interesting because uh, he's probably the only world sovereign that you and I can point to that follows a lot of same Twitter accounts as us. And I'm not talking about the Atlantic Counselor Joe Biden right, <laughs> right now. Right, 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 right. <laughs> he follows very interesting Twitter accounts. Um, 
yeah, I mean, the, the the consequences of immigration in the United States, I think I think there's there's so many that, that you can look at. One of the ones that I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into is the cultural side of things, because, you know, this argument does get a little bit muddy and it's important for us to be precise in terms is like there is some truth to the idea that immigrants are more you know, socially conservative than the domestic population of citizens. There, there is some argument to the fact that they're harder working, but but ultimately, I think that those arguments fall apart. On an intergenerational analysis and also on their own terms, well, walk us through what 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 are what are the lies and the myths that are baked into all of that? Right. Well, and I, and I do think that's important. And one of the things I I mean I don't engage in immigrant bashing at any times. I mean I don't even have anger toward immigrants. I mean I've said many many times. Gosh, if I were in X country, which is like ninety percent of countries, I would be doing anything I could <laughs> to get to the United States. You know, having spent time in this mm-hmm. country and uh, so then spent time in the United mm-hmm. States. I mean I, I totally yeah. get it. Uh, I'm angry at the left and the corporate right, which has so little regard for our own citizens that it's saying, oh, well, you know, come on in. That won't, the water's warm. We won't have any effect on us. So I think, as you point out, a lot of these analyses of social conservatism and of hardworkingness are absolutely true for generation one, but they kind of fall apart intergenerationally when they become just as degenerate as we have become <laughs> um, but but you know also have the attendant problems of like hey i don't totally feel like i belong here or i totally you know whatever else just uh, the inherent kind of feeling that it's it's harder to make the american story my story and which i which i don't support by the way i mean i think it just definitionally it has to be um the american story for every american citizen but what functionally happens is that you see the erasure of American history and American heroes because a lot of these new people, when they're here in such volume, they're like, well, this story doesn't, you know, it doesn't star my family. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to, these are bad guys. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like these guys. You know, we're going to erase these people and what they built and we're going to do a new story starring me and my family. Mm-hmm. Totally understandable human mm-hmm. reaction. Again, I didn't blame folks for thinking that way, mm-hmm. but it's not good for the country. Yeah, and you then see the reaction, of course, on a lot of the more provincial people on the right. And I'm again, I'm not using that pro, uh, pejoratively. That's a lot of people out where I live. It's just a you know factually who kind of are not connected to these immigration flows and whatever, and they look at this stuff and they're like, "We're renaming schools after George Washington." Like they can't even comprehend it, and I don't blame them. Yeah, um, so. Yeah, the I, I'm thinking out loud as I'm thinking about this, but one of the downstream consequences of uh, the fact that when you have mass immigration, you get mass quantities of people who who can't see their family in a nation's history, and so they don't. Whereas if there were just a few of them, they they kind of have to. They do. But but if there's a lot of them, they don't. We're also on the second generation of that problem, which is that to the extent that they have ties in the country, it is their sort of. Um, ethnic predecessors in the 20th century who were defined by, because of the cultural political mores, social revolutions that they engendered. And so the only historical sense that they can tie themselves to is also being a social revolutionary. Sure. And and, and so they have a history now and it's like, okay, we're, you know, a viva la revolution. That's like, yeah. that, that's, that's no way to run a country because like part of what defines any country with, with history is 
is good times and bad and they only can think of themselves in the times of churn and the times of bad. I mean, sure. we're, we're sort of on generation two or three of this project to the point where you know there's a lot of patriots who for the longest time, you know, in the 90s and 2000s were kind of out in the wilderness and and they weren't listened to and um, many of them were canceled. But but how has this this problem materially changed from, say, someone who is an immigration patriot in the 90s and early 2000s to today? We're 20 years further along in this process. Well, it's just gotten worse and it's gotten more sobering. And I think the the, the question you hit of of numbers, and in fact, one of the big um, immigration organizations on the right is Numbers USA for this reason, um, because uh, when you look at, um, I, I look, I grew up in North Carolina in a very low immigration community, but not a zero immigration community, but a low immigration community. Mm-hmm. The immigrants or kids of immigrants who were there became almost more Southern than Southern in a certain way because mm-hmm. they felt like, well, this is what I have to do to fit in. I'm not going to, there is no ethnic enclave. I, I'm wearing cowboy boots right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, is no, there is no ethnic enclave for me to fit into. Yeah. And so they really did acculturate and assimilate yeah. in the way that we need to have successful. So it's not, you know, immigrants bad. It's immigration at this scale is not healthy and again, because we've now had it going on for so much longer, we just have the the problem mm-hmm. going on and getting more severe and intergenerationally. And, and you know, maybe try not to just be totally blackpilled about it. Maybe, you know, intergenerationally as these groups have been part of the American story for longer, they'll be able to find those antecedents mm-hmm. um, that will make them feel more fully part of the American project as they need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think functionally, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot more of like, uh, Thomas Jefferson is Satan and, uh, you know, we must destroy all of the colonialist white supremacist history of the United States. And, uh, you know, that is a recipe for disaster, in my view. One of the other ways that I think the immigration debate has fundamentally changed is we've gone from a world where broadly what people were assimilating into was a normal country with normal social mores, normal values to today where like yeah, if you ask people to assimilate, they're going to assimilate into the mainstream culture today, which I don't think is what either you or I particularly yeah. want. How do you think of that? And how do you think of the 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 uh, imploring to assimilate? And if, if we can even say that in good faith or good conscience anymore? It's a great question. And I actually, it is funny because I find myself, even with my great suspicion of immigration, these days turning a lot more towards socially conservative compatriots who are first generation or zero generation Americans, but who just sort of are like, I don't want to be like those degenerates you know, <laughs> looking at like legacy white America here. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and so I do think that there's some interesting, again, maybe kind of trying to make, put a little more positive spin on this. Mm-hmm. If you believe these polls about Hispanic voters mm-hmm. in 2022, and I, I'll believe it, I guess ultimately at the ballot box. But if we see uh, Republicans win that vote block, as a lot of these folks who come from a more socially traditional background, particularly down in Texas, you see a lot of this uh, kind of come into the uh, the camp of identifying with what I call more traditional values, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. Maybe that's a good thing. Um, I mean, it is a good thing, period. Yeah. But maybe that kind of gets us to some degree out of the mix that we're in. I still think the biggest problem, and again, something that was not true, in fact, the opposite of legacy immigration that we have to solve is right now you get a lot of benefits of all different types 
if you identify as members of certain racial or immigrant groups. Um, as long as we have that incentive, there is no incentive to come together as one group, and there is every incentive to balkanize. Yeah. Um, and so until we remove that incentive structure, uh, I think we're going to be fighting an uphill battle. So within that Hispanic you know, voting trend, I think there's two discrete phenomena. There's the phenomenon of the zero first-gen immigrants, and then there's the phenomena of the fifth to seventh-gen immigrants. Um, I think what's happening with the former is a version of like what the normie Republican argument is, oh, they're voting against socialism. Yeah, kind of, but it's like not the socialism of like tax policy. It's the socialism of like statues being toppled and cities being burned down. They recognize anarchy from their home countries and they're like, nope, (laughs) not interested. Um, And that that cuts very interesting ways, politically ways that I think would make a lot of Republicans very uncomfortable in terms of what the messaging would need to look like. It would need to be a law and order message. It would not be the message of like platinum plans and criminal justice reform. (laughs) Sorry. Um, And the second is like the fifth to seventh generation, uh, which is a process by which people who like, you know, this is used as a pejorative, but they're like pulling up the ladder. They're like, you know, (laughs) they they, they came here seven generations ago, five generations ago. And they're like, nope, no more. Thank you. (laughs) Like, and that's totally fine. It's it's in someone's rational self-interest it's in a national self-interest um and it's kind of coterminous with another phenomenon that's very real in the social science which is especially when it comes to light-skinned hispanics they just start identifying as white after a while they stop uh both through intermarriage but also um just through kind of self-identification yeah their name might be rodriguez but they're like i don't know (laughs) you know like absolutely and you actually see this there's there's actually been an interesting um series of papers that have not gotten probably sufficient attention by a couple guys at the university of texas i'm just blanking on their names all of a sudden where they do look at this phenomenon particularly in terms of hispanic uh immigrants and intermarriage and one of the things that they do discover is that the liberalism of hispanic voting patterns is always overstated because intermarried hispanics who do not identify as hispanic despite acknowledging they have Mm. hispanic heritage tend to be much more conservative voting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you look at, when you've already reified the category of Hispanic, which is a problem problematic enough category as it is, um, you're automatically pushing it to the left a little bit of what really lived experience mm-hmm. is. So that's a little bit of a white pill. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, again, you have to have that encouraging process. You have to set up institutions and incentives to encourage that type of intermarriage, mm-hmm. to encourage that type of acculturation. Mm-hmm. And the left is totally resistant for the mm-hmm. most part yeah. to doing anything like that. There's a take a theory that I've been working on for some time that I guess I'll, I'll beta test with you in conversation. And if it sounds ridiculous, we'll cut it. Um, and it ties together all these different elements. It ties together the cultural concerns of what's happening in the United States, the brain drain issue, the assimilation issue, and all of it. And it's my theory that right, right now, potentially the worst kind of mass immigration to do is the highest skill immigration. And the reason why is because I think that the process of high, high skill immigration to the United States is ultimately a globally destructive force. And what I mean by that is we have a largely permissive policy on high skill immigration. And, we, and there is no policy demand to decrease that. If anything, even from restraint minded immigration reformers, it's we need more rocket scientists. So, okay. Right. It's very easy for those people to come to the United States. And the second they get here, they are assailed with cultural messages that tell them, hate America, become far left. And they're put into a cultural environment and an economic environment that, um, 
largely encourages them to intermarry with other like very high IQ intelligent people and then never have any children. And to the extent it, that they do have children, it's like, yeah, you're going to have kids in these very high IQ, high income areas where the public schools and even the private schools are going to be the sort of place where like if your son dares accidentally pick up a doll, they're going to be, you know, injected full of hormones and they will like be completely screwed up after. So just in terms of like raw talent, IQ, like it seems like it's it's globally destructive, whereas some of that might still be preserved if they were still in their home country. And it's it's the worst case scenario. What, what, what say you? <laughs> I, I think I'm broadly sympathetic. Um, I'd say the as an American chauvinist, i.e. just like wanting people, you know, of the best America in this sense, I would say that like the truly cream of the crop I still want from everywhere mm-hmm. because it's just good for America. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's bad for somewhere else, but I don't live somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I want America to be the best. Mm-hmm. The problem is that's not what you have. And if you look at H-1B visas and you actually dig into the details of how these are used, you're getting a lot of like good, solid, smart, like the sort of people who would populate that good professional class Mm -hmm. somewhere else. But then we bring them here. They're not actually moving the ball forward in terms of advancing a new frontier in science and Mm -hmm. technology for the U.S., but they are kind of take, I mean, this is one of the true times where they are taking jobs away from, Mm -hmm. you know, American engineers or whatnot, Mm -hmm. um, and all the cultural patterns that you just hit on happen. So I'd say... I still want to go after mm-hmm. we should still be recruiting the very best okay yeah. like but right now when you really look at who we actually are recruiting even under mm-hmm. high skill immigration we're going way too far down and with way too many people so you know kind of your median h1b worker essentially has the jobs that we sort of have a uh rightly so a sort of romantic uh revanchist um sort of sense of which is like once upon a time there were these great you know, uh, manufacturing jobs that could sustain a family. Like the modern equivalent of those are these sort of lay coding jobs where you're going to make 80K a year and be able to support a family if you really want to on that. That class of people is being entirely, uh, you know, su- superseded by H1B and programs like it that, um, or or it's being outsourced, which is a lot it's pretty concerning. And it's why like American right. policy on any one of these issues that define, um, you know, our faction of the right, whether it's foreign policy, immigration or trade, you can't disentangle any of these because say we did shut off the H-1B spigot, we would just accelerate the outsourcing spigot. And so we need to we need to pay attention to both if we want to actually create the mechanism by which Americans get those jobs. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you did spend some time in the Trump administration, and I want to hear a little bit about what that was like. One, why'd you decide? I mean, you were there for, I think, like four months. Yeah. <laughs> why'd they, you, why'd you decide to do that? And they, what'd you they, do? <laughs> they spent more time vetting me yeah. than I did actually in it. Um, I had actually turned down a job midway through to be on the policy planning council at the Department of State, which would have been very interesting. Um, and Thinking about <laughs> all the trouble you could have gotten into I could into have over gotten there. <laughs> into all sorts of trouble. Um, I did it for totally, um, not totally, but but primarily personal reasons of we'd had this dream as a family that we were going to travel. Uh, and this was like the one time I mean, when you have five, two parents who have careers and five kids, the amount of time that you can sync up to make this a non-disruptive element in your life is very small. Mm-hmm. We had it. So I ultimately turned it down with some reluctance. I then got back and they just 
turd I got back. And they're like, aha, you have no more excuse now. And so they, <laughs> they got their, their claws into me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and I thought, well, this will be at least. Well, let's, let's talk about the reasons why, because you are, you were deeply right wing, which was yeah. important to the great patriots that were at the presidential personnel office Absolutely. in the last year. The administration. Tremendous patriots for all of you. Absolutely. You know, we can give them shout outs. John McEntee, yeah. you know, James Bacon, all those guys. But, um, but you were also credentialed in traditional ways that are really important to the non-teeth pulling nominations. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you you had the PhD, you had the it was a, it was a PhD, right? Yeah. Although I, actually, I I dropped out of the PhD with before my dissertation to go work for Secretary Schultz, but yeah. I had that graduate training. Yeah. You had, you had had the graduate training. You had the private sector experience. Yeah. You were like you were colorable is the word that they like to use as a nominee. Yeah. And so that was the reason why is because like you were, you were relatively inoffensive, yeah. but you had all these amazing right wing priors and you were like broadly generally competent. So they could like literally stick you anywhere, which is why you were originally nominated for policy planning at Department of State and ended up at Department of Interior <laughs> yeah. while also being primarily an immigration guy and yeah, like so yeah. on and so forth. So so you you did end up uh, getting roped back in. Why did they send you to Interior and what did you do there? You know, I think there was a thinking that this would just be, I mean, I could have gone to any number of places, but I felt like for me, um, because I also knew because I'd written controversial things that I would, um, which was, you know, the one like little fly in the soup, uh, that those things would come out and be uh, used against me in various ways when I joined the administration, which is of course exactly what happened. Didn't particularly bother me, but the Washington you know, it was, Post, it was out there, <laughs> yes, like lots of people saying what a terrible person I was. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I think was um, was useful was I could really go in there in the De Department of Interior and I felt really competent, confident that like I'm really good at this job. OK, like I know way more than probably just almost, you know, the vast majority of other politicals in this building and frankly, the vast, vast majority of their alleged professional staff, mm -hmm. too. I just had a better background mm -hmm. in it. Now, of course, I want to give due respect, particularly to uh, my fellow politicals who knew D.C. Mm -hmm. and how those agencies worked much better than than I did mm -hmm. as a total newbie coming in. But I felt I felt very comfortable in my competence and that I could look anybody in the, the eyes as enough of a, a person who cares about professional competence and say, you know, yes, I was really qualified to do this job and that's why they brought me in to do it and you know if we'd gotten a second term uh they had uh, various senatorial uh nominate you know confirmed plans for me that could have been a rather epic confirmation <laughs> row um and probably just as well for my personal life that we yeah. didn't have to go through uh all of that but if yeah i mean if i known that it was yeah. obviously just gonna be for four months i wouldn't have done it but it's also and this is the way they do things with um the White House's people, because I was a White House guy and not a department guy, and the deep state didn't want me, um, they put me through the most ridiculous ringer for months after months after months, even though there was nothing in my background, mm -hmm. uh, I thankfully say, that was really causing um, any concern. But it got to the point that I was like having to sell individual stocks that I didn't even know I owned within mutual funds that I had trivial holdings in. So they, they found all sorts of ways to gum up uh, the uh, the works and that was a good introduction to how the deep state works for sure. 
So, you know, all the craziness in 2020 denied us the the joyous sight of watching you and Maisie Hirono absolutely get into it at a committee <laughs> hearing. Uh, I, I, will, I will never forgive Joe Biden for, for, you know, taking that away from us. It would have been truly delightful. Well, hopefully, inshallah, 2025, we'll uh, get the opportunity. Well, so, so what exactly did you do at the Department of Interior? What was your title? What was your job? Yeah, so I was Deputy Assistant Secretary for Fish, Wildlife and Parks, which means I was effectively overseeing both the Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Park uh, Service with reporting into an assistant secretary, but like functionally on a day-to-day basis, uh, kind of I was involved with that and I was particularly doing more of the the fish and wildlife side. So it was kind of a return. I thought about doing more pure energy stuff um, because again, I'd been doing so much of that at Stanford, mm-hmm. but I was like, you know, especially hoping that I'd get longer at the job than I ended up getting. Uh, I was like, I'd much rather spend my time hanging out in beautiful national parks and giving talks uh, there, going to do fish and wildlife stuff than I would uh, in underground coal mines, which I spent my fair bit of time uh, doing in my career. Uh, and so I just decided to do that. And I Are really there pictures did. of you with a hard hat on? I, I do. And, and uh, particularly in India, I spent all sorts of time in crazy, uh, dangerous underground coal mines talking to people about their jobs and, uh, you know, how efficiently things were run. And, um, but uh it was just nice to kind of get back to that sort of more pure environmental interest that I'd always uh, had mm-hmm. uh, and that I now luxuriate in living in Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed uh, that piece of it. I enjoyed all the content of what I did. And there, you know, there were good people in the bureaucracy, even who I worked with. There were clearly people who were out to thwart me. There were people mm-hmm. who were leaking stuff, but there were also people who were out there just trying to do a good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do want to acknowledge that even amongst the careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and wanting to move the mission. Uh, met, met men in those green uniforms and those cream, cream colored hats yeah, with yeah, the wide yeah. brim. Well, like, certainly, <laughs> I think the closer you got to there, the yeah. more people you got like that. But even even in the D.C. policy apparatus, not everybody, or at least maybe if they were toxic, they were hiding it mm-hmm. very, very effectively from me. I, I don't discount that. But, um, you know, I did see one of my big takeaways was just how much you had to fight these people and also how defeatist our attitude was toward thinking this was an acceptable state of affairs mm-hmm. and uh, they would be you know i would talk to my sort of more the, the other senior politicals in the department and they're like oh yeah you know this guy's gonna try to thwart you in this way mm-hmm. and you know you just do this and this and this and like you know maybe you can win and i was like no he works for me like he has to do what i say because i am the duly appointed you know designee of the president i mean definitely attenuated obviously at at my level but through the secretary um and like we were so defeatist in mindset often that we just didn't we we sort of accepted that of course the bureaucracy should work against us and so one of the things i'm thinking about a lot now at claremont is like well what can we do to really address that in more fundamental ways yeah when we get back in office so that we don't simply accept what is a totally undemocratic breaking with all of the traditions we should have as a country state of affairs when an administration comes in we should be running the country within obviously a a framework of laws passed by congress um and the bureaucracy is here to help administer our policy Uh, it should not we should not accept a state of affairs where the bureaucracy fights us but unfortunately among dc republicans i think there's a lot of acceptance of that and so as a naive person coming from outside, that was a little shocking to me mm-hmm. and not something that I uh, did accept then or do accept now. In that issue area vertical, what was the most exciting right wing thing that was possible? That <laughs> well, we let's see, there were a few things. Um, 
we did some things and i think ultimately uh because we uh didn't fully keep the senate i think they may end up kind of being undone over time but we did some things with uh the spotted owl which was a great (laughs) 1990s environmental issue that just like never died where I really felt like, I mean, I dug in again deeply to the science and policy in ways that I was very comfortable with that most politicals would not be and was really able to say, uh, you know, like, honestly, there were some people with an agenda in the professional staff who were trying to get us to do a bunch of stuff that was really not justified by the science or law. And so we were able to push back on that and really do something that kind of made more sense from an overall cost benefit Mm -hmm. analysis of of caring for the environment, but not kind of totally um, destroying local communities and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was kind of one fun thing I got to work on. It was not the the only one. Um, and uh, and then we got some some fun money to play around with in the national parks and do some things that I think were were useful there. But um, mm-hmm. uh, those those would be kind of among them. But I, I mean, I would love to go back. I, I was sort of surprised. I, I didn't think I was necessarily going to like it. I felt like well, I should go do this because I'm in policy and I have this opportunity. They want me to do it. I should go do it. Um, but I was actually surprised that I, I really enjoyed it, despite even the people trying to undermine you. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of enjoyed the the practical element of policymaking. Yeah. Yeah. So Jeremy Carl personally murdered millions of spotted owls. So that's that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's that, going to be that's, the takeaway. That's the headline. That's the next Washington Post article. Absolutely. Jeremy, where can people keep up with everything that you're doing and uh, and 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 follow you? Because I, I assume after this, people are, are going to want to do that. And everybody should, because despite being uh, aggressively uh, throttled and shadow banned on Twitter, <laughs> I still maintain the fight. Um, you, that's really probably the easiest way to do. I'm at Jeremy Carl, J-E-R-E-M-Y-C-A-R-L-4 is my Twitter handle. I need to come up with a little more imaginative one. I just kept that from like eight years ago, whatever I signed. Well, that's up. how you know that you weren't a tech bro there, a technology brother for a few few years is because you weren't like immediately the first Jeremy Carl on Twitter that's being able true. to grab that handle. That's true. I was just, I you know, I have to say, I mean, I say this with some shame because I spend way too much time on Twitter now that like when it came out, I was like, why would I be interested in that? Yeah. And then you kind of, it's, it's like heroin. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I've never used heroin, but it's like, oh, you know, now all of a sudden you're, you're really addicted to it. That's the best place. I, I tend to put out my articles there. Um, uh, there may be a sub stack coming uh, forthwith. Uh, mm-hmm. Watch that space for details. And then also, of course, the website of the Claremont Institute, which is the, uh, the very fine uh, institution, really, I, I say without uh, gilding the lily at all. Uh, I, you'd be hard pressed to find a better institution or think tank on the right um, that uh, is nice enough to pay my salary. And uh, you can certainly check out some of the things that we're doing there. They are great patriots. Jeremy, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Saurabh, so much. It was uh, really fun. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed taping it with him. I think we went a little bit long too, which is always fun um, to to get some time with their guests. Thank you, Jeremy, for taking the time out of his busy schedule when he's here in D.C. for a couple days at a time uh, to tape with us. Uh, you can follow all the work he's doing, obviously, at the Claremont Institute's website and then uh, follow him on Twitter. He's a great Twitter follow and he pisses off all the right people every single day. As always, please make sure to rate and review this podcast. Five stars only, please. And if you write a question in your reviews, we'll be sure to answer it. Uh, you can see the the video version of this podcast on YouTube and Rumble. We're always trickling out clips on Twitter at ammomentorg. And you can follow me at S Sharma US. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. I feel like we 
say this every week, but we have no idea why so many of you do listen. I get stopped by you guys on the street all the time. Um, but once in a while, I find out that uh, some of you hear my uh, imploring to you to reach out to us at AmericanMoment.org slash join if you want to join up with the things we're doing concretely in D.C. and you think it doesn't apply to you. It does. Please do that. Uh, if we can help you advance in your career uh, to get more involved fighting on the issues that we talk about here on this podcast and you don't reach out to us, we have no way to know that. So please please reach out. Uh, AmericanMoment.org slash join. You will meet with me personally, and we will talk about how to make sure that you have as much of an impact in this world as possible. Thank you guys as always for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.